Now that we're all getting back in town, right? Everybody's getting back in town for another year in Waco. What should we expect this year? What should we anticipate and be passionate about pursuing as a church and as a people this upcoming year? Here's the answer. Gospel growth. In your life and through your life to others. In fact, we should anticipate and be passionate about the gospel going deep into our bones and producing a love for God and a love for others on the spot. Having the gospel grow deep into our bones and producing deep community that we just heard about with us. Have the gospel go deep down into our bones and producing a greater outreach of Mercy and word and deed and ministry into other people's lives. And also producing on the spot a bold faith to trust God to do what only he can do in your family, in your personal lives, and in using you in other people's lives. That's what we should anticipate. That's what we should expect. That's what we should be passionate about. In fact, the scriptures at times chasten us for having lack of faith in the gospel. Lack of faith in the gospel being powerful, of it being living, and of it moving and working in our lives. Now, we're going to two services next week. This is a, a small expression of trying to have some bold faith. It's a small expression of saying, oh God, unleash your gospel upon us. Oh God, cause your gospel to grow in our lives personally, in our families, and through us into other people's lives. John Knox was a spiritual giant. He was mentored by John Calvin. He spent his time in Geneva, and Calvin would bring mentors and apprentices, uh, mentorees from all over the world would come and he would disciple them and train them and equip them and then he would send them out. And for many of them, literally, they knew when they were going back to France, they knew that their life was on the line and that he would say goodbye to dear friends and dear apprentices that he knew he probably would never see again in this life. Well, one of them was a guy named John Knox, and he was going back to a place called Scotland. And John Knox brought the gospel to Scotland, and John Knox is known for his bold faith. He made the queen shake. She used to send out spies to hear what he preached on and what was going on in that pulpit, because whatever went on there was having rippling effects all throughout Scotland. And his bold faith, when he was leaving Geneva and he landed on Scotland, it is well documented. It's It's one of the things that I leaned on when I first came here to Waco 12 years ago. This was his prayer. Oh, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Charles Spurgeon came centuries after uh, John Knox. You know what his prayer was? Oh, God, raise up more like the fiery Knox. Brothers and sisters, for me, And for the leadership of this church, this is a year of bold faith. Of trusting that the gospel really is the power of God. For your life, for your family, and for this church and to this community.
Now, what kind of preaching are we going to do this fall? What kind of what kind of book in the Bible are we going to unpack to unleash gospel growth upon us to produce this incredible effects in our lives? What book are we going to look at? Well, it's a book that has greatly impacted a guy named Milton. You ever heard of him? I just talked to an English guy in the back. Ever heard of Milton? Dostoevsky? Kafka? Uh, how about uh, world-renowned psychologist C.J. Young? This book has greatly impacted these men. Let's talk, how about Dante, Shakespeare? I thought the guy's name was Goth, but his name is Goethe, actually. And he, was it Goethe? What's his name? Goethe. Well, there you have it. So glad I have you educated people in this congregation. Well, evidently, he's considered to be the supreme genius of modern German literature. Correct? Thank you. C.S. Lewis, this book is impacted. Uh, Charles Thomas Carlyle, he's a famous 19th century man of letters. He wrote of this book this way. He said, I call it, apart from all theories about it, one of the greatest things ever written with pen. What's the book? Well, you got it in your bulletin, right? Job. Now, for some of you, you're like, good night. You mean to tell me you want to have bold faith produced on the spot in this people? And you're going to preach Job? (laughs) Dude, you need to go back on vacation, right? (laughs) Yeah, Job. I think you're going to be shocked. I know I have been as I've been in the book now for two weeks. Why are we going to do Job? Here's my answer. Ada Morris. Clay Wooten. Hannah Russell. Virginia Yip. Dave Hunt. John Dykstra. Rafer Lutz, Dina Kayworth, Dan Johnson, Evelyn Burkholder, and all of those of you who are suffering anonymously, alone. And because of all the family and friends of sufferers, and because of a church family, of sufferers. And then there's one reason, there's one last reason, and his name is Carson Lutz, Rafer and Lori's oldest son who turns eight tomorrow. Ever since his dad's Job experience, he's been asking all kinds of questions about Job, the book of Job. Asking his parents, wants to ask me, has all these questions, inquiring about Job. That's why. Carson's on to something, though. He's on to something about all these questions he has about Job. In fact, Job actually asks more questions than it answers. So as we move into Job, many of us are going to be like, good night, question after question after question. And then you're going to be like, good night, where's the answer? So we're going to do something a little different this fall. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to have a question and answer box, a Job question box. We're going to place it out 
outside these doors. And when you're hearing something in the sermon, when you're talking about something in your community group, when you're at the water cooler with a buddy or a pal or a work associate, or you're opening up the scriptures and you want to read and study Job for yourself, and all of a sudden you come across a tough question. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, you just want to philosophize and speculate about inner hidden mysteries of God. I'm talking about tough questions, the kind of questions that make you nauseous, the kind of questions that keep you up late at night, the kind of questions that don't let you go to sleep, the kind of questions that put an emotional and mental knot in your heart. And it feels like impossible to dislodge it. I don't know how to untie it. But I must do that. If that happens, I want you to write it down. And I want you, you can sign it if you want. Drop it in the box. And the following Sunday, I'm going to take one of these questions and I'm going to respond to it. And I know I'm saying respond to it. I'm not saying I'm going to answer it. I might be able to answer it, but it, probably I'm going to respond to it. And preferably, we're going to trust the Lord that in the next sermon, there'll be a spot in the sermon, a three-minute spot where we can ask that question and deal with it. Okay? All right. Now, what's the big idea of Job? Let's get this down, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the big idea of Job, the driving engine of Job for our time together. It's the title of the whole series. We're calling it, When All Hell Breaks Loose, Job and Jarring Love. Okay, that's the overarching, driving, pounding point of the whole book. And then we're going to break it down. And each sermon will be an unpacking of that big point. All right, so today what we're going to do is we're going to do some recon of Job. We're going to spy out Job. We're going to spy it out and do a flyover before we wander into the deeper wonders of Job. And here's our question this morning that we're going to ask and answer. How do you read or listen to Job? I mean, we're all coming to a very, I mean, a book that people call a literary masterpiece unparalleled by the written pen. We're coming to a book. How do you read it? How do you listen to it? Do you read it or listen to it any old way you want to? I mean, can we say, I'm going to read it as a myth. And then someone over here is going to say, I'm going to read it as a moral lesson. And then our more conservative evangelical brothers are going to say, I'm going to read it as a timeless truth. How do we read Job? Can we read it any old way we want to? Please stand for the hearing of Job. Those of you that weren't here the last time I preached, I've added some visual effects to my dress up here for your sake. Oh, cheapers. I only can do it for reading. Here we go. We're going to look at Job. You have it in your bulletin, 1 through 12. Then we're going to go to James 5, 10 through 11, okay? So 1 through 12, it goes like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. That means his birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Even Job understood that sin at its root is not behavior but the heart. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. You're wondering, what is that? We'll get to it. And Satan, if you have a footnote, it should say the Satan. So every time you hear this, it's literally the Satan. And the Satan also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. Blameless, upright who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge protection around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand. Touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, Pay attention, in other words. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's now go to James, or I will. This is James 5. We're look 10 through 11. What's going on here is James is interpreting the book of Job for us. Are you ready for what an apostle says about the book of Job? As an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Evidently, Job is lumped into that number. Behold, pay attention. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, (laughs) this is James interpreting Job. Right? When you, when you read about the interaction of the Satan and God, were you thinking this is about the compassion and mercy of God? And then when we explore what happens in the earthly realm after what happens in the heavenly realm, when we see this hammer after hammer after hammer hit Job, are you thinking this is about the compassion and mercy of God. Of course not. What a great way to begin, Job. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, when we hear what James says about Job and we hear what we intuitively, naturally normally respond to about Job. 
uh, there's a huge gap. We ask that you would shrink the gap. That we'd be able to say with James, as we look at Job, as we look at our own life, as we look at our loved ones, the purpose of the Lord is His compassion and mercy. So Lord, would you begin to do this now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God's Word is accessible to everyone, right? I mean, we all believe that God's Word is accessible to everyone, that everyone, no matter what their background, no matter what their race, no matter what their distinctions are as a person, they have equal access to the Scriptures. What's fascinating about Job is that Job has a unique accessibility to all people. Job is uniquely accessible to the churched and the unchurched. Job is uniquely accessible to those who can't stand being told what to do and those who have this deep need to be told what to do. Job is uniquely accessible to those who value personal freedom and self-discovery, individuality and autonomy, and those who value control and tradition and order. In other words, Job is uniquely accessible to believers and doubters and skeptics and religious fleers and runaways. It's uniquely accessible to everyone. So much so that one scholar highlights it this way. Job and the events therein occurred outside or before the life of Israel and thus is a ready-made point of contact with unchurched people. So why is Job a ready-made point of contact with unchurched people? Well, because as we're going to see, it's because the events and the people in Job happen outside the official established religious community of Israel. So the events and the people of Job happen in the unchurched regions of the world. Much like Jonah and his ministry to Nineveh. Okay? But there's also a far deeper more personal reason why Job is uniquely accessible to all. Do you know what the answer is? It's found in suffering and evil. Suffering and evil are uniquely accessible to everyone without distinction. Now, there are going to be three folks that show up in this book that are going to say that's not the case. We'll deal with them when we get there. They'll say, no, evil and suffering is not an equal opportunity employer. It's for a select few. Don't be those few. Right? Um, everyone suffers, and evil and all its manifold hammers hits everyone. Just the other day, I read about a pastor who was cutting his front yard, doing his business. I know why pastors cut yards, because when they cut a yard, it's done. And you can actually see the work of your hands. Completion, accomplishment, attainment, woo, for another week, right? 
So he's down there. He's got his head down. He's, and he looks up just in time to see a huge dump truck pull out of his neighbor's driveway right over the neighbor's 18-month-old son. He gets in the ambulance with a hysterical mother and a lost father as they race to the hospital. That son's the same age as Ty. There's no hope for this child. This child was crushed beyond all recognition. Now, if we live long enough, if you live long enough, if I live long enough, you will suffer. And if you don't live long enough, Theologians and other thinkers have thought to classify suffering evil in several ways. Some of them are helpful, some of them are not. I'll tackle some of them. We'll hit some of them. Some of them are good ways to just try to get your mind and your heart around some things. So it's good, those that have thought long and hard from history and present, to borrow some of their classifications just to bring some order to a complete disordered room, right? Good. Some of the ways they talk are this way. I don't know if it's helpful for you. It's sort of helpful for me, but it's, I want to just briefly touch on some of the classifications and, and what the point is of these classifications. One of the classifications is irrational evil. Does that get you an idea? It's, you could say circumstantial evil. Things like uh, accidents, the truck and the child, right? Uh, natural disasters, weather terrors, disease and sickness. I mean, in the world today, right now, worldwide, 40 million people have HIV. These uh, irrational evils usually are called irrational because there's no direct link to personal irrational evil. That's why it's called irrational evil. Well, then the other side is personal or rational evil, right? And this is the realm of demons and man. And this would be things like, oh, anything from war and racism, genocide, grinding poverty, starvation, the murder of six million Jews, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, even think there's more. Those things on down to actually hating and disdaining a brother in your heart. These, these things that are like out there that we see in movies and we hear in the news and we read in our history books that are just atrocious and they make our blood curl and the justice come up in us like we want to just grab a sword and get after it, right? Well, then we got to take a step back and we start seeing that we got this personal kind of resident evil in us and we withhold love and respect and we don't forgive others. We gossip and we slander and we abuse and we tear down and we mistreat others. Rational evil. Here's the point. Regardless of how we classify suffering and evil, it's equally accessible to all of us and ultimately you can't control it. You can't stop it. You know, sure, you might be able to manage your reputation for a while, but eventually you're going to get disrespected by someone, right? Sure, you might be able to do push-ups, and that's good for self-protection. 
but a 60 mile an hour car wreck, it will do little for you. Sure, money can be spent generously on those in great need and can alleviate their suffering, and we should do it every single time. But cancer could be stalking around the corner too. How do we read Job? Here's the answer, the first part of the answer. As a sufferer, we have to read Job as a fellow sufferer with Job. We have to read Job as if we're an insider on suffering with Job, not as an outsider on suffering with Job. Okay? Now, it's not just that we read Job as any old kind of sufferer, and we're going to look at that right now. So we do need to read Job as a sufferer, but not any old kind of a sufferer. I mean, let's look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. No one knows exactly when Job lived. No one knows. Most scholars believe that he lived before Abraham or was a contemporary of Abraham, and there's three key reasons for that. There's this patriarchal uh, culture and lifestyle riddled through the book. There's this patriarchal way of relating to God, which we just read about in verse uh, 5. There's this sense of pre-Israelite life situation, culture, worldview, relations, understanding of the world, all right? So that's why that happens. No one knows when Job lived, and no one knows who really wrote Job and when they wrote it. There are speculative suggestions that range that Moses wrote it. A prophet in the age of Jacob, a contemporary of Jacob, wrote it. Or a wise man during Solomon's time wrote it. No one knows. But it's, it's almost certain, or it's very probable that Job is probably the first book in the Bible to be written. Certainly the events that happen in Job happen before any book in the Bible is written. Now, regardless of authorship or time period, and regardless of how we might want to read Job as a myth, a moral lesson, or a mechanical truth, Job reads itself as history. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Job is about a real man with a real name living in a real place. And God wants you to know right in the beginning that Job is a real person with a real life. His his life and suffering is not mythological. And it's not a moral lesson. And it's not an abstract mechanical truth. His name is Job. And he lives in the land of us. And he has children that he loves. So Job and his suffering is historical. So we're not to read Job 
in an ahistorical manner. What does that mean? Remember, we're, we're trying to look at how do we read Job as a sufferer, but not any old kind of sufferer. You can't read Job as an ahistorical sufferer. You can't read Job as a stoic sufferer. You can't read Job as a speculative, mythological, imaginative sufferer, as some detached sufferer, as some stuff-it-down sufferer, as some denying-it sufferer, as some depersonalized sufferer. We have to read Job as a historical sufferer. And what that means is we have to read Job as a real, genuine, authentic, honest sufferer. Because we are real people who have real names, who live in real places with real loved ones. So we must read Job as a real sufferer. And the literary bucket, the literary style of Job drives this point home big time. This literary style, when I want you to think of, again, literature, remember, you got the, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to always re-up it. You have the scriptures are the word of God, 100% divine words, 100% human words. Boom, right? The message of the scripture, the water of the words are carried in different literary buckets. The waters of the word could be carried in narrative. Most of the Bible. The water of the words can be carried in poetry. Psalms. Wisdom literature. Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. The water of the words can be carried in epistolary literature or what's called propositions. Tight arguments. Points. Powerful, personal truths, right? Job is a unique literary bucket. It's a blend of story and poetry to gain maximum impact on the hearer. It's a literary, it's a literary style that's charged with high drama. It's a literary style that's designed to reach the reader's heart. It's a literary style that's designed to deeply create a response in the reader in the deepest hollows of his heart. It's a literary style that's designed to reach and restructure the things that go on in your heart powerfully. So Job is not a lecture and it's not a PowerPoint presentation. As one Reformed scholar says, it's evangelistic theater at its best. It's theologizing with passion, end quote. To read Job rightly, you must be ready for Job to get personal. If you do not read Job and allow it to get personal to you, you will step outside of Job and treat it as a mythological account. Whether you confess that that's the case intellectually, in your experience, that is exactly what you're doing. This is a mythological account. It's ahistorical to me. Okay? All right. Let's wrap this up. 
We will only do this if we look through something that Job was not able to look through. Did you notice in these first uh, passages that we looked at that we get to view reality, we get to view things in a way that Job doesn't get to view things? Did you notice that all of a sudden we get to go in this heavenly courtroom Job doesn't get to go there. It's like we're reading this and we're like, oh, where are we going? Here's Job. And then we leave Job and where are we going? We go to this heavenly realm and we see this, the Satan and God's interactions with him. And we, we're looking, does Job get this access? Does he get to see what's going on? No. He's stale down there in us, about ready to be hammered. Job is giving us two lenses, two angles to see what's going on. Job is giving us, as a literary device, in the book itself, there are two lenses that we can look through to read and understand and see Job. To read and understand who is God. To read and understand who Job is. To read and understand yourself. To read and understand suffering and evil. And if you miss one of these angles or these views, you will misread God. Misread yourself. Misread suffering and evil. This heavenly angle or lens, number one, and this earthly natural lens. Number two, those are the two lenses that this scripture gives you. Looking through one gives you wisdom. You see reality rightly. Only looking through the other one, you're one of those three friends. Now we get to see the heavenly right? And it looks like Job doesn't. The apostle James gets to look through that heavenly realm, right? He looks through that lens. He looks through it very clearly. And this is what he says. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. According to James, the book of Job is a discovery, Job's discovery of the endless, infinite compassion and mercy of God. According to James, the book of Job is an inside look at God's jarring love. We have to look through that heavenly lens or we will never come to that conclusion. If all we look at is the earthly lens, we will spin all kinds of thoughts about God and suffering and evil. Now, here's the full answer to our survey question, all right? We must read Job. How do we read Job? We must read Job as a real sufferer looking through the lens of jarring love. That's how we have to do it. So we, we can't just read. We have to read it as a sufferer. We're fellow sufferers. But we can't read it as any old sufferer. We have to read it as a real sufferer, not an ahistorical or mythological sufferer. And the only way we can do that is if we look through the lens of jarring love. 
this heavenly lens that the Scripture gives us. Now, I told you earlier that Job didn't get the look there. Whew. It's very interesting. In, in Job 19.25, it's almost like he does. Job 19.25, which we'll spend a lot of time in, is the, it's the centerpiece of the book. It's the pivotal point of the book. It's the high point of the book, and everything builds up to it, and then everything flows from it. Some want to have the divine uh, an, uh, announcement from God, which is very, very true. But something happens to Job at this passage that changes him. He has a major growth spurt, and he changes on the spot. In fact, when he gets to this point, his interactions with his friends and his interactions with God have changed. What does he say? You ready? Here's what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. Somehow, somewhere along the way, the heavenly lens opens up for Job. And he sees someone who's a redeemer. A redeemer means someone who rescues you. And you ask yourself, from what? What's he being rescued from? Well, we get the answer through the whole book. All this suffering and this evil that he goes through, right? And that's the meaning when it says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the earth. When the Redeemer stands on the earth, all suffering and evil is done. It's over. He rules. He reigns. He conquers. He crushes. Inherent in Redeemer in the definition of redeemer, is that a redeemer rescues, a redeemer releases, but he does so at great expense to himself. Inherent in the word of the understanding of redeemer is that the redeemer will rescue, he's saying my redeemer lives, he will rescue me, he will stand firmly on the earth and crush all suffering, evil, sin. He will do this, and he will do this at a great expense to himself, at great cost to himself, at an infinite ransom debt to himself. Now, we'll have to figure out how clear that gets, right? But James is real clear. The Redeemer's expense or costly price is himself. That the Redeemer actually gives himself to rescue us. Jarring love. It's more jarring than what Job goes through. If we look through that lens, and begin to see this Redeemer who rescues us at the highest cost of his own blood and his own life and of giving everything he has. We'll be okay. We must read Job as a real sufferer, looking through the lens of jarring love. Amen.